Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode on the Unfinished Podcast. I'm Pastor Don. I'm coming to you here today with our regular episode of what we call Monday Musings, which is where I talk through particular issues, ideas, the sort of stuff we'd normally cover in a sermon. And as it happens, we're going to be doing that with a sermon today, actually. So today I want to share with you the recording of the sermon that was delivered at Unfinished Community this past week, entitled My Kind of Home. It's based on scripture from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. And from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Uh, and I, of course, go beyond that as well, because that's kind of how I do. Um, so this really kind of covers everything I wanted to talk about. I'll drop links to those Bible verses in the description if you want to follow along. But in the meantime, uh, I hope that you find something that speaks to you in this sermon. This last Monday, I, I, I think only three people ever bothered to listen to it, but I still do do this, uh, this podcast thing as well every, every Monday. And last Monday, I talked a little bit about the story of doubting Thomas uh, and, and how he was doubting the resurrected Jesus. Now, of course, there's a lot to say about that story. I'm not going to get into that today. That's actually what the podcast is for. Uh, but I do want to actually start our, our conversation today there. Uh, because where they are in the beginning of that story is really important. They're huddled in a room, hiding away in fear of the Jews. Now, that was the piece that kind of stuck with me this whole week as I'm thinking about today, is it wasn't that they were hiding in fear of the Romans. They were hiding in fear of the Jews, but the Romans would be the one that makes sense, right? I mean, Jesus was executed primarily because the Romans considered him a threat. They feared an insurrection in the Jewish territories. So this upstart rabbi comes in talking about an end to oppression, jubilee, new springs of justice, God's unending love for the least of these. That was a pretty big threat to the empire. I mean, crucifixion isn't a Jewish punishment, right? It's a Roman punishment used by the Romans in their oppression of the conquered territories and vassal states of the empire for centuries. And they used it because it was brutal, it was humiliating, and it was just super public. Once someone had been executed that way, everybody knew. There was no way this person was ever going to be a threat again. And they knew exactly what the great and powerful empire was going to do if somebody ever got out of line like that again. Now, like I said, the Romans had been using this for centuries. Crucifixion was in service for some 500 years, up until about four years after Jesus. They're using it to great effect for a good five centuries. And then along comes Jesus, and he seriously screws up this vital instrument of imperial oppression. I mean, if resurrection is now on the table, suddenly crucifixion doesn't do anything to stop a rebellion. If anything, now it has the potential to make things a million times worse. Now you've made a martyr out of your biggest enemy, but somehow they're actually still alive and they're more powerful. I mean, it's... (laughs) It's like uh, the death of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, strike me down and I'll become more powerful than you've ever imagined. Star Wars references aside. Um, 
I mean, if you were in the Roman Empire, though, in this situation, and Jesus had just inconveniently respawned, you'd be going after the guy with a powerful will, right? You'd be after him with everything you had. So we, we get to the start of the Doubting Thomas passage, but it's the Jews they're afraid of, not the Romans. What? This one kind of stuck in my, in my head for a little bit. Why is it that? And I think it is, we, we tend to think about this early period in the life of the church in kind of a cut and dried sort of binary way, which is kind of how we think about a lot of more nuanced issues, if we're being honest. We tend to think of the early Christians as this kind of well-defined, yet still very hated group of otherwise kindly, loving people who were worshiping in secret, hiding in homes and the like for fear of all the angry Jews, Romans, and others who had organized specifically to hunt them down and destroy them. The truth is, at this point in the story, at least, uh, Christianity in particular wasn't all that much of a threat to anyone. I mean, at least not so much of a threat to warrant that kind of deliberate, organized, persecuting response. I mean, sure, like I talked about earlier, the idea of Jesus' resurrection would be a grave threat to the Roman Empire once it caught on. But it hadn't really caught on yet. And a big part of the reason why it hadn't was that at that time, uh, much like any other time in human history, it first had to find a way to overcome the momentum of hatred that the community surrounding it had for them for being different. Now, this is why they were in fear of the Jews rather than the Romans. It wasn't because the Jews were more organized or determined as an institution to hunt down and eradicate these horrible Christians. It was because these new Christians were still Jews. And they now had to contend with an entire culture full of people who saw them as heretics, blasphemers, and worse because of the direction their beliefs had taken. And you know, anger and hatred and all these feelings, they're so much worse. They're so much more terrifying when they come from inside the house, from places where we'd once been welcome but suddenly are no longer welcome. And this is where Saul of Tarsus comes into the story. Now, I mentioned this a few times over the last couple of weeks, that Saul wasn't acting as a persecutor of Christians in any official capacity. I mean, good at it as he was. No, what, what Saul was doing here was something that was really kind of expected of all educated Jewish men of his station in that time. Something that was baked into his culture, much as it kind of is into ours and it's been baked into really every human culture, religious or otherwise, since the first humans started organizing into tribes. What he was doing was bullying those who didn't fit in. And like any bully, his reason for doing it was pretty simple. Identify those who were different, and then punish them until they stop being different. For the Jews of the period, this was considered almost a holy practice, tracking down heretics, and seeing that they were brought to God's justice. This is why guys like Saul are doing this thing. Not because they particularly enjoyed hurting people or because it was their given job to do, but because they felt it was the righteous, God-inspired, holy thing to do as practicing Jews of their particular school. I mean, from his perspective, as a member of the the Jewish educational elite trained in the Shammai school, uh, to him, being Christian was a sin. Uh, specifically a kind of blasphemy. And it was a sin that Christians were choosing to make. 
Now, as a faithful follower of the more mainstream religion of the time, he felt it was his responsibility to call out these people for their sin and see to it that they got the just and due punishment for the sins they were committing. And the individual hurt he might cause was kind of incidental to what he saw was the greater issue of sin against God and community, the thing he felt he was addressing. Of course, our good buddy Saul here has a run-in with the Almighty along the road. And as we read this, we hit another one of those places where we kind of dissociate from what God is really doing here. When we first read this passage, we kind of like to qualify this as a sudden event, something not really related to everything else going on in Saul's life, something that just happened, suddenly Jesus. But when we see Jesus meet with Saul here, you know, we feel like God just kind of picked him because God knew he'd be a good missionary and that his sins as a persecutor of Christians, well, just like any other sin, it's something he's got to repent of and then move on. It's not something that's really central to his identity. Um... But in this moment, God wasn't really just choosing somebody for his missional skills. God was choosing to make use of someone who was in that place in time the very embodiment of the human tendency to isolate, other, and reject. God chose someone who is quite possibly the best example of the time for what it means to be part of the in-group, a proud member of the elite inner circle, confident in his own righteousness and goodness and unquestioning in the belief that God was on his side. God chose someone who was representative of the human desire to establish and define ourselves by isolating and excluding others. So let's look at what Jesus does in that Moment of, of conversion here. Now, unlike just about every miraculous encounter Jesus has during his ministry, unlike just about every face-to-face encounter with God in the Bible, the divine doesn't just show up here with a lesson or a parable or a teaching. God actually isn't here to teach anything, at least not in the way we're used to. <coughs> Jesus pretty much just shows up, strikes him blind, says, yep, it me, and then tells him where to go next. That's all. God's encounter with Saul here isn't healing. It's destructive, painful, it's hurting. Jesus actually doesn't seem like he's here to help at all at first. So in one fell swoop now, we've got Saul of Tarsus, who's gone from a powerful and righteous man doing God's work in the hunting for heretics to a blind man who can only depend on the kindness of other people to get to where he needs to go. Talk about humbling. (laughs) Now, from here on out, everything about Saul's journey becomes about the people he has to rely on. When he's eventually healed, he's not healed through baptism. His healing doesn't come when he professes his faith. In fact, he doesn't come to faith in Jesus until after his eyesight is returned and he's fully recovered. Ananias, who God has already arranged to be in the city up ahead, never asks Saul to do, give, or be anything, before praying for him and facilitating God's healing of his vision. At no point in the conversion of Saul is he asked to repent of the sins that he definitely committed as a persecutor of Christ. He's just bundled up, taken care of, and then healed for no other reason than that he was, he was hurting. And God said, we're supposed to take care of people who are hurting. 
So this is where Saul sees, truly sees for the first time. He sees what a community that operates on the grace of God actually looks like. In this moment, Saul sees the truth of Isaiah 66, but this is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. In encountering God, Saul was forced to go from being someone who defines what the community has to be for everybody to someone who is only able to experience the community for himself. That's the experience that fundamentally changes who Saul is here. It's not the blinding light, the voice in the desert that changes Saul into the man who would become known as Paul. It's not the ritual of baptism. It's not the theological formation of his profession of faith. None of that is what turns his heart to Jesus. It's the unreserved and undeserved love of the community. Saul had spent his whole life working to identify sinners to shape the community by excluding them. Now, like most of us, like like all people, I'm sure, Saul had his own stable of convenient justifications. Uh, Maybe he felt, well, I'm just engaging in tough love. Or maybe he he reasoned that he was cleansing God's people of sin or something. It's not hard to come up with reasons for excluding people. As an educated man, an intelligent man, devout in his faith and firm in his convictions, Saul probably could not have changed his heart if he encountered Jesus as a teacher or a friend. Kind of like the apostles did when he just shows up as they're fishing in John 20. For Saul, anything Jesus could have said to him in that space probably would have come in through the lens of his own mental and cultural understandings. The words of Christ would have been bent to the culture and context of Saul. If it was simply a matter of changing the details of faith or belief, all that would have happened here is that Saul of Tarsus would have become a persecutor of the Jews rather than for the Jews. He'd still be a zealot, just operating under a different leader. But by telling him nothing, he was forced to experience the community of Christ. People who never asked anything of him, even though he had very much sinned against them, they had cause to hate him. And all he had was his own homemade justifications as a reason to hate them. And still they healed him, welcomed him. They loved him for who he was. It was grace that opened Saul's eyes and gave him the realization that it wasn't enough to just change his belief but he had to change how he understood what it means to follow God completely. I I think all of us, on one level or another, know that that lonely feeling of being pushed out of the group. Over the last few years, I've come to know it quite intimately myself. Um, As human beings, community isn't just something we're built to do, it's something we're built to long for. It's an integral part of our personal and spiritual identity to want to be together with each other. And when we don't have that community, when we're not part of the group, it's heartbreaking for us and it's completely terrifying. But once we're there, once we've found our people and once they have taken us in, we want to put up walls around it. We want to tell ourselves that we're guarding it and that we're protecting it, but whether those walls are built of stone, concrete, or convenient justifications, we aren't really doing it to keep others out, but to keep ourselves in. 
The act of isolating others, policing the sins of other people, defining for other people what they can and cannot be if they are to be in community with us, is a fundamentally selfish act. We do it because we want the community to focus on these other people, on their sins, because we are terrified that if the community looks at us too closely, they might find that we don't belong either. And then suddenly we're the ones living outside the walls, blind and lonely and isolated once more. When God talks about the house that we are to build for God, we're not talking about a temple of cedar or a shiny ark for Indiana Jones to steal a few centuries down the line. We're talking about a community, one which doesn't set arbitrary limits on who can and cannot be included. In our Isaiah passage, we have that bit about killing an ox, sacrificing a lamb, and all that. It seems confusing, but what God is saying here is pretty simple. There will always be some way, some practice, some ritual that you use to set boundaries for a community that I, as God, have decreed is to be without limit. So I think this this week, this is what I want us to, to meditate on. When Isaiah speaks for God and gives us the verse, when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. Uh, He's not just speaking to the telemarketers. He's at once describing how God feels when we ignore the call to build a community of love without limit and what it feels like to be living outside the walls that a community has put up to keep us out. This isolation, this loneliness, this is what Saul experienced when the light of the Lord blinded him. In one moment, he was changed from a powerful academic, someone safe within the walls of the great community, to a blind man, living in a space where that kind of disability was considered to be a mark of some great sin. So I guess that's my question for us today. And if you thought I was going to not ask discussion questions, you were definitely wrong about that. What are the walls that we have drawn up around our communities? What are the ways in which we've attempted to draw a boundary around God's community to define who can and can't be part of it or the ways in which they can or can't be a part of it? And what, <coughs> what might it mean for us to have a community without walls or borders, a church where everyone is welcome? So there are the questions I have, and I, I open it up to the floor. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about this. All right, everybody, that's the end of our sermon for today. Uh, It's a bit longer than usual, but I really hope there was something in there that spoke to you. And if not, no worries. We hope we'll catch you with the next one. In the meantime, uh, feel free to check out our website, and that'll help you to get an idea of a lot of the stuff we're doing now. Uh, We're building towards some more in-person stuff, as well as our regular worship services here in Japan at a Shia Christian church. But we've also got quite a lot going on online as well. Our Discord server is where the majority of stuff is happening right now. So if you haven't joined up with that yet, please let me encourage you to do so. There is a lot going on there, and it'd be wonderful to have you as part of the discussion. In the meantime, no matter who you are, where you are, what you're going through, or what your life looks like today, I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you, and God is with you too. Take care.